um, the plane hit the second building and then it became just a phone loop of trying to find all our friends. Um, Welcome, Alex. Hi. Thank you. Thanks for having me, Barry. It's exciting to be here. Congratulations Thank on your podcast. Thank you. It's really a pleasure having you here. First of all, let's start with this. On your Instagram profile, you in the caption thread from Chicago to Iraq. So, can you elaborate more on that? Uh, yeah. I mean. It's Dream Chaser, and so I had got some really good advice about 10 years ago from a writer, journalist named Jerry Van Dyke, Okay. and he told me to live my dreams and then write about them, and I think that's been really good advice. So my travels have taken me, you know, from my dual home in Brooklyn all the way here to Kurdistan, Iraq. Okay, so you started in... In Chicago, right? Uh, I left Chicago when I was 19, so it doesn't feel like home. I'd say that I spent most of my adult life in New York, and surprisingly, I've spent a lot of time in the Kurdish region. I've lived in nine countries, eight, nine countries, but I've spent almost 10 years here. <laughs> so, it's a long time. Yeah, yeah that, that, that is a long time. So, so how did yeah, that happen? Yeah, it's the second longest country I've lived in. I've lived in. So, so you're kind of part Iraqi right now? Can we say that? No, I wish <laughs> I could say that. I never really uh, culturally assimilated. <laughs> okay. okay. You no, know, it's so hard as a female, Western female here, um, just to kind of mesh into public life because women aren't part of public life, largely. Yeah. And when they are, uh, they're Kurdish, they're not Iraqi where we live, and they don't normally speak English. Okay. And they so, don't go out at night. They don't go and socialize in the places that um, foreigners go to. Okay. And, and if they do, they're usually with other women and children or with their husbands and families it's not i've never seen like a group of kurdish women my age out you know i'm 54 i've seen your age out but not my age okay so so you lived most of your life in new york how was that my adult life uh, it was yeah. fun i got i think i lived in new york at a great time it was i lived there from 2000 and no sorry from 1994 until 2006, when I went abroad. Okay. And it was, you know, pre 9-11, it was a time where you could be an artist in the city and you could wait tables like four nights a week and have enough time to pursue your art and you could live. The city's gotten so expensive. I don't know how young artists do it today, yeah. unless they have a trust fund. Um, because the city is so completely gentrified, way out into the boroughs. I don't know where you find cheap living. I mean, we lived in this oh, it's terrible apartment. It was a commercial space. That we were illegally living there. <laughs> My interior wall was exterior brick. It was an attachment on stilts to the back of the building. 
and there was a very bad winter summer storm. And I came home. I mean, my my interior wall was this brick, was the outside brick. So it was freezing in the wintertime. It had no insulation and no heat. I had a plug-in space heater, total fire hazard. And none of the windows opened but one. And it was a plexiglass window without a screen. And because, you know, I hate insects and I'm really allergic to bees, I would never keep it open and no air conditioning. It was super hot, you know, in oh. summer. And it had like a string on it. So it opened up and you had to tie it to the nail to get air in, right? Whoa. And I came home after there was a big storm and the window was on the ground. It had blown out. Okay. And there was a structural break. <laughs> so the... <laughs> The part that I the part that I lived in in the house okay. that was on the stilts had to come down. So then I moved into the living room. I mean, we were we were my roommate and I, one of my closest friends, he's like a brother. We lived the the New York rent artist experience, and we thought it was great. We were so poor, yeah. you know. We had to like we had to plan to budget to go see a film in a cinema. This <laughs> like real yeah. internet like we yeah, yeah. couldn't like to go out for a five dollar burrito was like a luxury i was in theater school he was a opera singing cater waiter and we would i waited tables two i could because the conservatory was nine to five during the week i could only work like a lunch shift on the weekends i had like no money and we just thought it was great we thought our lives were great we were living <laughs> You know, we were living kind of like this bohemian artist existence, and and you could in New York at that time. I don't know how artists do it today, but it was fun. You know, and then our, you know, I got I finished theater school and worked at this premier wine bar, and he wound up being a driver for this very wealthy man who was um, a patron to the arts, and so he he just loved and supported artists. So our financial circumstances improved. And the city was very alive and until 9-11. 9-11 changed a lot of things. So, um, so, so, so how was life in New York when, when that happened and after 9-11? Oh, it was, oh, God. I can remember, you know, I lived in Williamsburg in Brooklyn. So you can, like, you can, from some parts of the neighborhood, you can see the Twin Towers. And so wow. I had this great group of friends. We all worked together the same wine bar and we all had the same acting teacher we were very close and we were close to the owners of our restaurant it was very much a family atmosphere it was a great time of my life and um so get up in the morning it my my friend Meredith we worked for a woman named Sherry Sherry had wanted to start a new business right at uh trade tower number seven and so we had negotiated the lease on the Tuesday before on the 4th of September, but not signed it. And we were going to have like the owners, part owners with Sherry of this like uh, gourmet kind of coffee, exotic sodas, Belgian beers, like kind of cool hit place in World Trade area. Okay. And um, so we were all you know, really good friends and Meredith, woke me in the morning and she said, you know, put the news on that, you know, we had acting class together too. So I was, we had closed the bar the night before we had talked our business plan with Sherry. I got up in the morning and I was working on my scene work for my acting class. Meredith calls and she's like, 
put the TV on. And uh, so we started this, I called John, our other friend who we worked together and we had the same acting teacher. And we were in this phone loop all day as we watched in horror and I watched in real time. Um, the plane hit the second building and then it became just a phone loop of trying to find all our friends um, who we worked with and cared about because like Sherry and her mother lived in a building right there. We couldn't get a hold of them. Our doorman was one of the New York City fighter firefighters who um, he's on the front cover of the Times Magazine. He was a group of four guys that had this special rope training and they had gone in um, to the buildings to try to find people. And we, you know, we couldn't find him. And so it was just a lot of like that day was chaos. And like, I couldn't comprehend what I was watching. Like, I still thought I was going to go into acting class, you know, <laughs> so dumb, like public transportation, all the metro and the city, everything had stopped. And so we were trying to account for people. Um, I, th I think we went into work that day. Sherry took whoever wanted to go upstate to her house. And then some of us stayed. Her co-partner was a guy named Michael. And he was with his um, policemen, firemen buddies, trying to see what they could do for search and rescue downtown. And uh, we were kind of just running the bar. And we couldn't find our doorman. So we went looking for him, firehouse to firehouse. Like then I guess that by Thursday, 9-11 was a Tuesday. Um, we just, we finished the shift at like two, three in the morning and Leslie and John and I went fire station to fire station downtown. We couldn't find him. He was fine. What had happened was earlier in the summer, like New York hadn't had a lot of fires. This is obviously before climate change had accelerated and we, New York had two or three big fires that summer and he lost a couple of good friends, like two or three. So he was coming off the shift, his shift on Monday night to Tuesday morning, World Trade happened. So he got off one fire truck and went downtown on another without signing in. So that when we called looking for him, I think we put him on a missing list. And then when we tried to find him, we were told he was missing. So it was, we kind of, I don't know if we did that, if we kicked it into him being an unaccounted person. So it's touch and go for a few days. He ended up, you know, he was down there working, but um, I want to say he was fine, but it really messed him up. Like he, I remember him telling me he lost 87 friends, firefighters and first responders that he played football with and fought fires with and knew very well. And he said, you know, um, wives come down here and they want to know, did, you know, did Johnny go peacefully? Did Johnny go peacefully? And he's like, what am I supposed to tell him? The only thing holding him together was a duffing fire suit, you know? And then there was this famous chaplain, Father Mike Judd, who was the fireman chaplain. And he died in 9-11 and not a lot of people know the story, but Gary told me he died because, um, when cars were falling, there was a spinning hubcap and it decapitated them. So that kind of stuff really changed the city. I mean, we had a sister restaurant in World Trade. And so our friend Denise was working and they got evacuated within, you know, then like during that next week because they had found an ear on the scaffolding. And 
you know, you were finding body parts. And our friend Nancy, our bartender Nancy, lived down there, and she had all these health complications afterwards from breathing in the asbestos. And it really changed the nature of the city. Uh, and it obviously brought us into war. And I feel very selfish even talking about how it affected us when the repercussions on Iraq have been never ending for 20 years and millions of people have died here uh, from the US hubris to invade a country that had nothing to do with you know, 9-11. So I feel my American privilege, I, I'm a little embarrassed that I'm talking about 9-11 when there's so many attacks in Iraq all the time. I mean, Turkey right now is dropping uh, drone attacks on Sinjar. So the country is, this country, your country is still scarred and being scarred from war. Um, you know, and I, it's, it's hard to be here sometimes. Um, I just am always amazed that you guys don't hate Americans <laughs> after what we've done to your country. I, I, you know, some of my students tell me about when they were like 10, 11, 12, 13, and they remember searches and if U.S. soldiers treated them well or treated them badly in their families. And, you know, I, there are kids who are from like Tikrit and they, you know, they can remember soldiers shooting family members in front of them during raids. And I'm always amazed that you are able to separate the people from the government because, you know, you look at Americans and they can be not all, but enough can be loud and ugly in their viewpoints, um, in their pre prejudices. So I'm always amazed at how much kindness I experience in this country, considering um, the atrocities the U.S. has committed in it, not to mention, you know, just the gross betrayal of the Kurds in 2019 when President Trump withdrew the forces from northern Syria and left a lot of Syrian Kurds, the mercy of Turkish forces. I mean, it, it's it's like Afghanistan. It's so it's so shameful. I'm so uh, humiliated to be an American at times like this, because we are betraying our partners. We asked to come with us on this adventure to build democracy and embrace democratic traditions and principles and then we leave our partners kind of alone when they need help i think you you summed it all up the thing is anyway uh, yeah about about the, the, the hospitality that that you got and everything that happened to you when when you got to Iraq. i think iraq people are they are trying to convey the best possible image about themselves when they see a foreigner, most of them, and and hospitality is a huge part of our culture, so we, we've been taught that since a really, really young age, so, and I think a lot of people really do make that distinction between the people and the government, because our government isn't perfect as well, and so we, we, we also are other countries, we also had, had been in war for eight years with the neighboring country. So <clears throat> our country isn't as, as rainbows <laughs> as it seems. But yeah, I I think the 
lot more and more prevalent because they the think about being this huge power in the world that your actions really affect people in, in real life. Like when the withdrawal from Afghanistan that happened and how how people died because of that. And do you think that there could be a more strategic way of, of, of withdrawing from Afghanistan? I, that is a question that my ignorance will show. I firstly think that we should have never stayed past the initial reason we went in. Which is to capture Bin Laden, right? It, not even that. I mean, some people said that mission was done after six months because the Taliban were defeated. I mean, Osama bin Laden had gone off to Abbottabad at some point between, I think, around 2006. And then SEAL Team 6 got him in 2010. But at some point, the U.S. mission in Afghanistan changed from avenging an attack on our soil. And the reason we went into Afghanistan was the Taliban were harboring Osama bin Laden, but they would not extradite him. They would not give him to the United States. Okay. So we went in. I mean, you can decide if you think that's right or wrong. I'm, I'm more of a anti-war person. I, I think violence begets violence. And, yeah. and that the only way we can live in a peaceful world as if we just stop fighting one another. Yeah, I think that's as well. At some point, the mission in Afghanistan changed and there was no oversight or big picture. I feel like it's really tone deaf and careless the way it was um, put into action. And it's the, it's the usual American hubris that's so infuriating. I mean, we went into Afghanistan with our NATO partners, yet we negotiated this withdrawal without considering our NATO partners. Like, where does that gross audacity come from? It's this American hubris that it just, it is just gross. I don't, George Bush kind of set the tone when he invaded Iraq. Because again, he kind of ignored what his NATO partners were saying. And if you're in an alliance, you can't act unilaterally. And the U.S. seems to think that the, they know what the rules are, but the rules don't apply to them. And once they set that action, then all their other nations think that they can act that way too, because it's established a precedent. And you saw it in 2019 with Turkey saying, well, we're going to go into Syria we're going to take this part of northern Syria so we can Arabize it and have a place for you know, Arab Syrians. It, and, and the UN General Assembly didn't say no. No, like no one did anything. Trump pulled out the troops and Syrian Kurds were slaughtered. I mean, That's cool. it's the same frustration when you see how Israel treats Palestinians. And they're just like the spoiled younger kid of the United States. That's a good way of putting it. Yeah, once this airs, I'm probably not going to be able to go to any of these. <laughs> yeah, it's if just, we ever air. It's time to just be truthful about our actions have consequences. And 
I mean, Afghanistan is so complicated. I don't think you can generalize what's going to happen. What's going to happen in the rural communities will be different in the cities. And the country the Taliban left 20 years ago is not the country they return to. There's this, but you've got citizen journalists, for example, and you've got Facebook and you've got Twitter and you have modernity, you've got malls, etc. And then there's this whole point of view. I was reading this really interesting article in The Guardian about a woman, an Afghani woman who's working for a Western NGO and they're not getting any assistance to get out and just how betrayed they, they feel and how abandoned they feel and with good reason. And this very real concern that women won't you know, be able to even go out of their houses again. Um, my friend did utter desperation at the airport to climb on DC-17 but so loud you know, if you're inside one, you need noise-canceling noise earphones and earplugs, but to clam on the outside, because that's your level of desperation to leave your country, um, is heartbreaking. And and then the flights the U.S. did take out of there, uh, I don't expect Afghans to have masks right now, but if the U.S. is flying in a cargo plane like that, why were there, those people were shoulder to shoulder nobody's masked. They're all going around the world. That's like a super spreader ready to happen. I do expect the U.S. to have masks. I, I do expect a comprehensive strategy. I do expect the leaders to think of these things. And I I just look at um, New Zealand and I wish Jacinda would, could be like the leader of the world. You know, one COVID case, they locked down, they locked down for three days. They, they take public health seriously. And I mean, the, you know, we have governors in the United States getting in the way of public health. You know, we're going to cut funding if you have a mask mandate in a school. Meanwhile, I've had my third booster shot, which I'm not telling you about. I'm testing positive for COVID, but I'm going to give a big meeting for all these Republicans in a closed indoor space. <laughs> I'm talking to you. I mean, it's just gross. Yeah. And I think that grossness, that male, no offense, but it is male, unempathetic, hubris to the maximum grossness permeates our government, my government, because it's a lot of white men. And, um, and they just feel like they can do what they've done and always do it and get away with it. And it's like, mm, you're not the only person on the planet. So about, about the, the COVID thing and, and the mask. So what do you think the argument should be for people who are anti-vaccine and who, who say that we don't know the long-term effects of vaccines, that's why they, they don't want to get it, and they don't want to be part of the experiment, but they are because they are the control <laughs> I think that, um, you know, you know my father died of COVID. You know, both my parents got it, and my sisters, both of them won't vaccinate, so well. I have very little patience for it. If we don't vaccinate everybody, and this is wealthy nations, stop hogging vaccines and please release the technology so People the majority make it, yeah. that has production facilities can make it. Yeah. We're going to continue to get variants that are stronger than our vaccines and we will not get ahead of this. So the life that we knew pre-January 2020, I think, is over. I don't, I don't think we'll ever come to that normality where you don't need a COVID test to fly 
internationally, you know, you're, we're always thinking about masks until everybody's vaccinated. And that's, and then if we don't do it soon enough, we have to develop new vaccines because the variants will be stronger than the vaccines we have. And so the people that don't get vaccinated, I, the cartoon part of my brain wants to slap them upside the head with the big rubber fish. I mean, <laughs> that's how I feel about it. Um, the rational side of my brain says, you know, we have seatbelt laws, we have no, we have no smoking signs in places, and those activities just affect you. But not vaccinating affects everyone that you go into a public space with. So stop being so selfish. It's not just you. And and the people who say it's my freedom of choice, I just want to say, really, where is that? Where's that love for freedom of choice when it comes to women's reproductive health care? Because that's what a lot of people in the United States will argue. Here, it's harder, it's harder to talk about because I think you have to think of the cultural identity. And Kurdish cultural identity is still very much influenced by, I think, um, Anfal. And Anfal was your government leader trying to kill you. And just the corruption that's endemic and rife throughout both Iraq and Kurdistan. I see why um, people are skeptical. Um, It doesn't help that some health officials here are also spreading misinformation. My friend brought her daughter to get vaccinated and the person giving her the vaccine said, this is going to kill you. (laughs) (laughs) So that kind of stuff is an argument for education. education reform and critical thinking. But I understand why people here might be mistrustful, but I I just wish they would get vaccinated. That's what I think about, because people don't trust pharmaceutical companies to some extent, because a lot of them try to make money as much as possible. They are profitable companies, so they try to exert this money, and during this pandemic, there is a huge opportunity to make millions, not trillions of dollars based on vaccines. It's itchy. I don't know. Till now, we, we don't know the long-term effect of vaccines, but we do know that if you are not vaccinated, you you have higher chances of ending up at the hospital and dying. So on the short term, I think we should get vaccinated. We also don't have a long-term effects of COVID. Yeah, that, that, that's another big issue. I, I know someone, I, I know many people who, who got it, and their lungs are, like, collapsed because of it, and they are still suffering from breathing issues, and their, their blood is, like, too thick or something like that. So the long COVID thing is also another issue. So the best solution for now that we can get off is, is vaccine, yeah. but also we don't know the long term effects. Yeah, I don't know. I'd rather have a vaccine. I mean, we do know that they're safe. FDA yeah. is going to approve them in September. I wish they would do it sooner. Yeah. But um, you know, there's so much about the disease we don't know. There are a certain amount of people that have a psychotic break, even after like months after they've had COVID. That to me is the scariest thing, that something would rewire in my brain and I wouldn't know reality from non-reality. 
that to me is right there. I'll get a vaccine. I think it's a really good decision to make right now because even though we don't know what it might do to you in the future, but it's the best thing that we can do for the present, in my opinion. We don't know what inhaling the remnants of all the bombs we explode all over the world do to us either, and yet we do them. You know what I mean? Yes. Yes. To, to elaborate more on on what you said about like the events of 9-11, I've been listening to a Lebanese podcast. It's called Sarda Fazina. Uh, they went into real details about the about the 4th of August explosion that happened in Beirut. And it's really, like, the, the scene there is really similar to what you described about, like, calling people that you know to, to make sure that they are alive and going there to fix the place and take out, like, corpses and seeing, identifying them. So it's really shitty that we are in, in this century, but we are still dealing with this stupid decision and these incompetent figures at power places because they probably don't deserve to be there and they really don't think about how their Chinese decisions might affect people on the on the long term. Yeah. Yeah, and then there's the whole case of privilege, you know, wasta for you guys <laughs> based yeah. on skin color for my culture. Yeah. And then, you know, Wealth and connections, basically everywhere in the world. I don't know how how we will solve this. Do you think it will be solvable in the future? That people, what solvable? Uh, people. <laughs> I'm not being hippy right now, but can we really live peacefully in the world on the long run? And I hope so. I mean. I started to work for a new organization, and their whole ethos is that we can stop war. We can stop the next war before it starts by taking care of people and loving them as they are for who they are, even though they're different and to believe different things, and give space or make space for them to have their different beliefs. And that part of the way of stopping the next war is going in and giving immediately immediate aid and relief and then giving skills to in creating job opportunities so people can have be self-sustaining and then being in communication and being in in um communion even with people who are different from us and making space for their difference of beliefs um, it's very hard to put into practice. The last one, I think the first two are pretty easy. Not easy, but they're doable. You know, yeah. we see people do them, organizations. But the problem comes, I think, because people always want to think they're right, show you that they're right, and force you to accept that they're right, and then change your way of thinking instead of just saying, well, okay, you can think what you want to think. But you have to give space. And so, all right, theoretically, how do you do that? to someone who wants to annihilate you, right? Well, they also have to come with a mindset, I'm gonna give space. And that's where I think the work needs to be done. In your generation, I feel so bad. We've just wrecked this world for you, my generation, because between climate change and uh, health, public health issues, I 
just feel like the 20s are going to be this decade of despair. I mean, your education has been completely disrupted for three school years now, right? 2021 and going into 2022. I, I don't know. I mean, I some days I'm not hopeful and I feel like, wow, if I were 20, what would I be thinking? You know? Yeah, that's true. But I think also struggles kind of have an impact on you that that make you a better person. That, that when you struggle enough and you you excel at these difficult difficult situations, you really become a better person at, at that, the end of that tunnel. Because like you take a look at the entire time span of human beings, even though that there are wars now and we can blow ourselves up with with nuclear bombs, because <laughs> it. Uh, major country have these but we haven't yet so <laughs> that's a good thing and the amount of wars and people getting killed in wars has decreased a lot in, in, in this country even though that there are still people who are dying at terrorists but it was like fucking wild we had two major world wars in, in the 20th century and i think wars will be different in this country I mean, some people think that COVID is a biological war. I don't know about that, yeah. But, yeah, I, I think it will be different. I think technology will play a huge part in, like, instead of invading whole countries, you can just send drones and kill them for, for these hackers, as we've seen happening <laughs> with some, some people. Uh, even though it's really bad right now, but I think we, we've come a long way. I'm glad that you're hopeful. Yeah. I I feel like we wrecked it for you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, 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 we wrap this part now. Let's, if you want, we can talk about movies. Okay. okay. Yeah. So, first of all, what's the earliest memory of you, uh, movie-wise? That's a good one. Cinema or home? Uh, let's, which was the, the earliest? Well, I can remember being a kid and watching The Wizard of Oz and being really scared when the witch came and having to leave the room. <laughs> okay, yeah. And then I think my earliest memory of a movie in the cinema was The Poseidon Adventure. Okay. And what, what? it was in the uh, 70s. At the 70s, okay. Have you felt something really special when, when you went to the cinema for the first time? And... You watch this huge screen with these loudspeakers, and you really felt the experience? Or was it something yeah, ordinary? Yeah, sure. I'm a firm believer that movies should be watched in a big space in Thank in you. Thank you. Not at home, on our computer. Thank you. I really think it, you need to be in a big space yeah. um, in community. Yeah. But um, we didn't, you know, growing up, my, we didn't have a lot of money. And so to go to the cinema was a treat. Yeah. Um, my parents, they both believed in education and culture. And so we didn't go on holidays, but they would take us to plays and musicals throughout the year. Wow. Instead. And so, I, I mean, it's funny, I hate theater now as an adult, but as a kid... <laughs> the musicals I love them 
and the cinema too. I mean, they didn't also, they didn't let us watch a lot of television, right? My dad's an immigrant, you know how it is. Like they have different values. <laughs> they just, they work really hard. Yeah. They, you know, they come to the country, they go to, they have nothing, they have to work really hard. And then their kids don't have to work as hard, but then my dad was pretty strict. So yeah. we didn't watch a lot of um, TV, but I can remember knowing that going to the cinema was special. And, you know, my mom is so Catholic that I can remember being like five or six and watching this movie and it's a disaster movie. Like they're in a, they're on a ship and it's sinking and they're like climbing up to the boiler room or something. And this woman's like in an evening dress and it like rips off and she's in her underwear. And because of my Catholic upbringing, I was like shocked and horrified for her that she was in her underwear. And then I, and then I was like worried about her immortal soul because she was in her (laughs) underwear. in front of people i'm like this is i remember this part more than the rest of the film i think shelly winters was the actor yeah Yeah. so i remember like being worried about that um yeah and you you talk about going to film school and taking acting classes what what were the the movies and series that really make you feel passionate about this and this for this art um, you know, I always wanted to be an actor, but I had never tried because my dad with his immigrant upbringing wanted to make sure that we were all self-sufficient. So we, he really wanted us to get degrees in, in something that you get a job in. So, um, and I can remember my senior year of college, I can remember my sophomore year of college, I wanted to quit the business school and be a journalist. And I, he like threw the one ads at me and he said, how many journalism jobs do you see? How many accounting jobs do you see? And like he wouldn't, and I was too scared to stand up to him. So I stayed in the college of business and hated every minute of it. Um, and my boyfriend, my senior year of college was in English. He was doing his, he was doing his master's in English and he was going to be a writer. And I remember thinking, wow, you're going to be a writer. Because I wanted to be a writer before I wanted to be an actor, I think. I think I wanted to be a singer before I wanted to be an actor as well. Okay. And I just remember thinking, like, I I didn't remember this until we reconnected 30 years later. And he reminded me of my younger self and said, do you remember asking me if you thought you could be an artist? And I remember, like, as soon as he said, I did remember the conversations. I finally started acting because I got my first job with Mobile Oil Corporation and it was so horrible. Like I couldn't believe that I'd worked so hard in university and I had had some really interesting and significant internships along the way that my job was so stupid. I was like, this cannot be what all that hard work was for. This is so dumb, so stupid. And then, of course, it was, you know, a big white boy company. Yeah. It, it, the office politics were seriously corrupt. It was just a terrible place to work. Um, and I was so desperate that I said, F it. And I auditioned for a community play, just any play. Yeah. <laughs> and I started acting. And then the next year, Mobile Oil was going to downsize. That was the era of consultants come in and tell you how you can make more money and be more efficient by downsizing and I opted I opted to to like have my job to leave my job 
and I hadn't been there very long. I they I say it was a terrible place to work, and I do think it was because of the overt sexism. That's the place where that manager walked by and swatted me on the backside with his folder. I told you that story. Yeah. When I wanted you to learn how to set, you know, to stand up for yourself. Senior off seemed like the C-suite executives. They were very good to me. They. You know, when they offered me the job, I refused it because I didn't know what I wanted to do. And they were recruiting me early uh, because I was a very bright student and I had done so many projects through my undergraduate years in, in business. And um, they said, OK, we'll leave this job open for you because we really want you. And we're not going to do that for other people, so don't tell people. But because they offered me the job in January and I turned it down and then they said, why? And I said, well, I don't. Think I ever want to have children so where I work is a really important decision to make like I don't I see myself as a person who has a career always yeah. and uh, they just they said okay we'll keep the job open for you until you graduate in June anyway so I started acting and then when they downsized I I, I, opt, I opted to like leave my job and they they could have just fired me right because I hadn't really been there very long and that downsizing was really for people who'd been there longer. But someone in that level, C-level, must have liked me. And they said, okay, we're really excited that you want to be an actor. Good luck. And they they kept my health insurance going for like six months. I think they paid wow. me for three months. It was really generous. And I so didn't really deserve it. <laughs> and then, um, you know, I started acting. And I don't know. I didn't know what I was doing at all. I was pretty pretty bad actor. And then I got better, you know, eventually you do get better if you practice at something. I never was great at it. I had moments that were good, but I was never great. I loved performers more than movies. So obviously Julia Roberts in Mystic Pizza, <laughs> you remember, she was like, ah, oh. desperately seeking Susan from 1985 with Madonna and Rosanna Arquette because it was that artistic life, bohemian New York lifestyle. I think I wanted to be an actor. I have to preface this by saying, growing up, my sisters and I were considered like the smart kids and my cousins were the pretty popular kids. Okay. So we never felt like we were pretty. And I think, I mean, yep. I've written a whole book about beauty and you know what I mean? Like my whole second book, that narrator lost her looks and has to reconfigure her life. So it's definitely something that subconsciously is in my head. I think I wanted to be an actor because I thought it would just miraculously make me pretty. <laughs> when I think about it, I really think that that was somewhere in there. And then I just wanted to like live all these different lives. Yeah. You can't do that. So, so there, there was pretty shallow. Um, but then stories would get to me. And I was always in a voracious reader. So I would read play, loads of plays and lots of fiction, nonfiction. I would, you know, dramatize passages from fiction for auditions and stuff. And, it was storytelling. So Eternal Sunshine of a Spotless Mind is one of the first movies that made me think, I really think writing is way cooler than acting. Oh. That movie was. I remember that story just kind of blew me away. And then... It's a really good one. Yeah, really good movie. And it was re revelatory at the time. People weren't telling stories like that. But then I, you know, I just, I got mediocre to okay, pretty good <laughs> as an actor. Um, and then I started not to love it. And then I started, more books changed my life. So 
I did a film with this woman named Larissa Kondracki, and her next film ended up being The Whistleblower with Vanessa Redgrave and Rachel Wise about this police woman from Kansas City who goes to the UN to be a peacekeeper in Bosnia after the Balkan War, and she becomes a major whistleblower about the trafficking that's happening with UN complicity. Wow. So that's what Larissa's film is about, and she asked me to read it, and then I started reading all her source material. Again, back to journalists. Victor Marlick wrote a really good book called The Natasha's. And then I read this book called Emergency Sex and Other Desperate Measures, and it's these three UN aid workers and their 10 years of deployment, Rwanda, Haiti, Somalia, Bosnia, et cetera. And that book was like, it's one of my all-time favorites. It blew my, me away. And then I used to go to this thing in New York called Naked Angels. So it's this collaborate. It's like writers come together and they give scripts or passages to actors so they can hear their words and you read it cold. And you have pretty formidable people there. Kenny Lonegren used to go. I've read for him. He wrote Slaves of New York and got an Academy Award. I mean, like well, formidable people used to be there. Yeah. So there was a guy there who wanted to be a playwright and his fiance was best friends with Kofi Annan's press secretary fiance. Okay. So Kofi Annan was the big shot in the UN and then. So this guy at Naked Angels was like, do you want to meet his press secretary? And I was like, yeah. And so we talked. And I was like, how do I get into aid work? I didn't want to act anymore. And yeah. so he was, we met in New York, we had a drink and he was telling me and He's like, uh, he's like, well, how did you go like wanting to go from acting to this? And I told him about Larissa and her and like the source material she had based her screenplay on and then emergency sex. And he said, look at the back in the acknowledgements, you'll see my name because this guy had been in missions with them and Burkino Faso and it just blew me away. Then one of the writers of the book was in town from New Zealand and the guy called me, the press secretary guy said, do you want to meet him? I'm like, oh, yeah. yeah. It was an Alice of the Looking Glass moment. Like, I'd read the book a gazillion times. I knew it word for word. And I was sitting there with one of the writers. And it just changed my trajectory. I knew I had to uh, explore this. And so I tried to find a job in aid and development, but didn't have a transferable skill set. So I certified to teach thinking I could get international experience and then start volunteering, and that's what I did. This is how you started in the writing business? No, I didn't start writing until 2010. Okay. I had come back to New York. I had been teaching in Ukraine at that point. I'd come back to New York, and I just couldn't get my life together. I had a really terrible job with this really terrible man. I didn't have health insurance, and I had to wait tables a couple nights a week, and this very unglamorous place where the whole wait staff thought I was an ICE, an undercover ICE agent. Well. I didn't understand. <laughs> Honestly, because they didn't understand why someone who was white, educated, and legal would be working there. Yeah. It was just a low point. Yeah. And then I, I enrolled in a writing class, and that's when it started. So I didn't write before then. Yeah. But, but you knew that you would be more into writing than, than acting. Mm, I didn't know what I wanted. No, I mean, I've been an actor for 10 plus years, so. So the first book was released in 2010? 
No, I started taking classes and I was a terrible writer and you could do these exercises and my sock and then you, I took a bunch of classes at the writer's studio and then I came to Kurdistan to teach and I was still taking the classes online. I would get up at three in the morning and take class on Thursday, Thursday to Friday morning at 3 a.m. our time. And uh, my writing got better and I got to be one of those writers that everybody, because it was online and you would do this interface and you had to review three writers. And I got to be one of those writers everybody liked to read because I would write about, I always was incorporating what was happening in Kurdistan. And then I decided to go get my master's in creative writing in 2013. And my thesis was half of my first book. So that I didn't start writing that first book until, and say, 2014 or 2015. Yeah. 14. I think I finished that. I, yeah, I started writing the book in 14 because that was my master's thesis. And I finished that book toward the end of 14 or 15. And then it took a long time to find a publisher. And then he sat on it for two years and it didn't come out until 17. So 2017 was the release of the first book. Yeah, 2017 was the first book. Then what happened like after what regarding like your writing? Oh, um it was a tiny micro publisher. He didn't even he didn't even edit it. You know, we edited it, my mom and I edited it <laughs> and proofread it. It was terrible. Okay. And I entered it into a contest, okay. the Eric Hoffer Awards, and they loved it. The final, they made it a finalist in four categories. It, it just did really well. It didn't sell well. It had no marketing behind it, but it got a lot of um, accolades. Um, it was a 35 over 35 book winner, debut book award winner. But the Hoffer Awards were great. I mean, they, they just, they made it a finalist in all these categories. I was really touched by it. Um, my second book, was with a better publisher, but still an indie publisher. He was a really good editor though. He definitely made the book stronger. Yeah. We would go back and forth about punctuation. I love, he was a great editor. He is, he is a great editor. He's not dead. He is a great editor. <laughs> um, but he doesn't know much about marketing. That book didn't sell that well. Yeah. And the third book got postponed because of COVID. It comes out in March. Of, it comes out on International Women's Day. In 2022, January, January, yeah. And then the fourth book comes out in June of 2022, another indie press, but the woman who runs that press is really on her game. She's very organized, very professional. So I hope, I think that book will do better just because it's in a better house. So, so for people who, who want to get more information about your book, where, where they can find it when, when they get released? I have a website. Okay. I have a terrible website that I made myself <laughs> terrible. Okay, okay. I, I will leave it in this description. If anybody wants to help me make a website, feel free. Okay, okay. We, we, we will put the position for it. Yeah. So I, I want to talk about language in particular because you, you improved okay. my language significantly. And I want to say that the, the 10 weeks that we spent in, in the APP program were, were like arguably the best educational 
period that I ever been through in, in my entire year, short period of life. And Thank yeah, you. Yeah, the, the, I always look back on these 10 weeks and <laughs> it was really good to, too good to be true. <laughs> and that, that, that's one of the reasons COVID did. Because like it was a lot of too good to be true. <laughs> then we got back to reality. <laughs> Thank you for saying that. Yeah. I really appreciate it. I should have left the university after your cohort because it was the best cohort I'd had in, ever. It would have been a nice high note to leave on. Yeah, well, so, it was fun. We had a good yeah. time. Yeah. I, I really enjoyed those 10 I, weeks I, as well. I, I mean, we, we did assignments while listening to Bohemian Rhapsody. <laughs> of course we did. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the thing is, I want to talk about because, like, I am trying to get into learning new languages, uh, but I think one of the best ways to learn a language or, or to really get use of the language is to get into the culture behind that language. So I think they go hand in hand. Like a lot of words are they're similar words, but in every situation you have to use a word for that situation. And that goes back to your knowledge about the culture behind the language. Uh, so how, how do you think it's best to learn a new language since you are an English teacher and I think the best way to learn a language is to use it. Okay. To immerse yourself in it, to use it and to read in it. Because when you're reading you get vocabulary and you get structure and you get to see how the grammar that you learn separately is actually used realistically. And then you have to produce language. So you either have to speak about it, speak or in it write. Yeah. or write it. So you could read something and write a response or speak a response, but you have to produce language. For, for the culture part of it, do you, do you think it plays a significant role in learning the language about how you might yeah. immerse in the culture? Yeah, that's why I suggest reading, too, in the language. Yeah. I do. Uh, to know the nuances, I mean, the basics of a language are you're going to have to put the work in to at least get a basic fluency. But for the nuances and to learn the language, um, you definitely need to know something about the culture. I also think being excited about the culture makes you want to learn the language. Yeah, I, I think that as well. I think so that's that why a, a lot of people learn English because they are so excited about the songs and the movies and the books and everything. So it's more convenient for them to, to read the original work, and which is easy. Kind of, yeah. So, so you can learn it, and there are tons, tons of materials out there for you to consume regarding movies, series. And I really want to learn new languages, especially European languages, French and Italian. And maybe I'll go to. I don't. It's, it's, it's a it's a long path to take because you 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 have to use it as you said to to get really into it. So hopefully you can go there and, and learn the language by, by, by living there yeah, as well. Do you have Duolingo? You could start learning some of those language with the free Duolingo. Yeah, yeah I know. Yeah, yeah, I know. Yeah. My uh, hairdresser was asking me how he could learn English, and I, I saw him 
like when I told him about Duolingo and I saw him three weeks later, he was already speaking so much more. Yeah, and I felt like a loser because I try to use Duolingo for Spanish and I don't speak it that well. Yeah, yeah you need to you put that work into it. Yeah. That, that, that's really like can be applied in anything in life. So I want to talk about things that will happen in the future and what you think about them. So let's first start with uh, artificial intelligence and let's move to another question. So what do you think about artificial intelligence and what's the role that um, that will play in the future? I know it's got cool applications. My writing partner writes a lot about it. Um, she's a nonfiction writer. Okay. But I, I don't follow it because I don't like technology. I'm much more I'm a person-to-person. -person. I believe in the human aspect. I think social media has really kind of crippled some things of culture and yeah, relationships. I think, well. yeah. I think it's really deadened empathy as well. So I don't think about artificial intelligence. Um, I don't want to live in a world where a robot is talking for me or to me. For you is, is understandable, but to, why to you is I want to talk to a person, preferably face-to-face, -face, so you can get all the non-verbal parts of communication, expression, body language, closeness. Are you leaning forward? Are you leaning back? I mean, so much of language and communication is contextual. I mean, I don't really speak any of the languages in the places I've lived. And sometimes I can understand a situation yeah. and answer in English. And the person I'm with was like, how did you understand that? It's like 90% of language is contextual. Yeah. That's why it's listening is so much harder on the TOEFL test because you don't have the visual stimuli to help you make sense. Uh-huh. Okay. The, the thing for me with, with AI, is I look from the perspective that it's going to uh, do the stupid stuff that humans do so that these humans can do something more meaningful in life there is such a thing <laughs> yeah and which brings me to my other topic which is like the universal basic income and what do you think about that uh i definitely think that people should not be too poor to live I, yeah. i'm a proponent of it but i'm a proponent of a lot of progressive social programs that are unpopular in the united states which we see successfully educated and executed excuse me in other countries but those countries are much smaller. So then you have an issue of scale. Yeah. But I think it would be great to start with basic healthcare. The US healthcare is rife with inefficiencies and it's just too expensive and people don't take care of themselves. They always work from crisis. They let, they let something go until it's a big problem because it's too expensive to deal with it as a small problem. And just simple things could be modified. Like if you could get prescription drugs at a pharmacy without seeing a doctor would make some things so much easier. Yeah. Like you do in other countries. You see it in the Middle East. Yeah, it's, it's really easy here for, for you to, to get you, I mean, the, the pharmacy that, that's in our neighborhood uh, has a section in it where the pharmacist is like, you can go there and he would diagnose you and give you the medicine like directly. So there is no need for right. <laughs> so you don't have to have an expensive doctor visit. You don't have to take off time from work, etc. Yeah. I mean, 
you know, we were talking before about the vaccines being an opportunity for greed and money making. My country's a joke. Your COVID test is free, but your hospital visit's $100. I mean, it's just, it's disgusting. People won't go to get tested because of that. It shouldn't be like that. You know, I went here. If you're flying, you pay for it. You pay more. But when I thought I had been exposed in the university, like get out of the classroom and go take a COVID test, it was like three, it was like three dinners. So for people who are listening to this outside of Iraq, that's like, I don't know, 30 cents, 50 cents. If people won't use it if it's really expensive, 3,000 dinner. Yeah, it's around a dollar. Yeah, so it was, you know, it's not what it is in the United States. Yeah, so I think if, if we were to implement AI, AI basically is, is where you teach machines how to teach themselves. So you teach them and they would, they're like kids and they would like grow themselves. But the issue that most people are afraid of that what they see themselves as more important than us and they would turn on humans and kill all of us, which is a possibility. <laughs> yeah. I'm not a fan. Yeah. I'm, not a fan. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm just actually, not a fan. I am actually. One of the reasons that I'm majoring in software, because I want to see how that will turn off, and hopefully if that dystopian scenario happens, they would keep the software engineer to, to talk with them. <laughs> But the thing is, if, if they were implemented in, in, in jobs that like don't require a lot of intelligence that people do, like working at factories or like small restaurants where, where the jobs are, could be done by a robot, I think universal basic income should be coming, yeah, could come with that. So you can't like replace humans and leave them with no jobs and no they were to be implemented. You would need both, but... I think most capitalistic societies aren't going to embrace both. I mean, my country won't. It's like so stingy when it comes to giving aid where where it, it's needed. I mean, there's a a president. Uh, there's a sorry, Governor Cuomo quote from last year, where he was talking about why he was um, supporting some Republican senators, and he said because he said that Democrats just wanted to give every black kid in America every black kid a free breakfast. It's like, it's so inherently racist, one. And why is it a bad thing to give lower-income school kids breakfast? They can yeah. stay, pay attention better school. Like, it's, it was just so gross on so many levels. So I think my country would be one of those countries that would replace jo- jobs machines, but not give universal income. Wow. Only for the really wealthy who dodge their taxes and or don't pay them. Hey, President Trump, I'm looking at you. <laughs> I mean, everybody. I mean, is it Bezos that Jeff Bezos that didn't pay any tax either? Ugh. Honey, I got to go. I have a 5.30 appointment. I'm okay. really sorry. Yeah, yeah. It was a real good one having you here. Thank you. And, uh, I'm stoked to be here. We can do these again. Yeah, I yeah, can't we wait will. to see real life, we, though. We will. We will. We will definitely. So thank you for for being here and thank you for giving us the <coughs> the best ten weeks that we have in educational. Yeah. And oh, good, you good have luck. no idea.
idea how much that means right now because I have a cohort that's not very pleasant and <laughs> it really means a lot. Okay, and uh, how was the luck with your next few books? We said you you can see Thanks. them down description and yeah, that's it. Have a good day. Thank you. I'll see you soon, hopefully. Yeah, hopefully. Have a good day. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.